You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizenselmira.ca. Before we uh, get into the message, I don't know about you, but over the last few weeks, I've watched a lot of news and seen a lot of social media, (laughs) okay? And uh, I think I'm not the only one in the room that's probably been doing that uh, because of the things that have been happening in Canada and in our world even. And um, one of the beauties of this time of year actually is that um, in the church calendar, we're coming right into a season that for us who are part of the evangelical church, we're not really used to practicing or doing, and that is the season of Lent, okay? You may know nothing about Lent, or maybe you have uh, heard about Lent, and maybe you think it's just a Catholic thing, or maybe you think it's for um, other churches and you've never done it yourself, we actually didn't have it in the plans, you know, to, to do Lent this year, but I was just feeling a sense uh, over the last week or two that Lent is actually going to be a gift for us as a church, okay? And the way that we want to do it and the way that we want to practice it will not look exactly like how the Catholic Church does it or maybe how you've done it historically. Um, maybe you have no idea what it is. And so I put on here a little uh, definition to just help you understand what Lent is, okay? And here's, here's a little write-up that says, in a culture inundated by individualism and hedonism, which is like the pursuit of pleasure, with rhythms and practices that turn our desires toward the things that we think we need, Lent turns our desires toward Jesus the only thing that we truly need, helping us trade lesser loves for his greater love. And when we enter into the story of Jesus, symbolically walking with him through the desert and to the cross, we move from self-gratification to self-denial. And as we embrace the pain and sorrow of Jesus, we turn away from our sin and toward our Savior. So Lent is this season of actually removing something from your life so that you can take in the narrative and the story of the cross and the resurrection. Because what happens in all of our lives, every single one of us, we begin to believe that other things become the greatest value in the world. Whatever it is, whether it was like the convoy over the last three weeks that's just like consumed your mind, or maybe it was like the Olympics. I'm not sure who, not too many people were watching the Olympics, but maybe it was the Olympics, okay? Or maybe it was like you watched the Super Bowl and all you could think of was cryptocurrency. I don't know what it was, okay? But you begin to think that this other thing is the greatest thing happening. And Lent reminds us for 40 days that the greatest thing that ever happened is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That that conquers everything and it changes everything in our lives. So we want to, together, collectively as a church, um, walk into Lent and take 40 days to just think about the cross and about the resurrection leading up to Easter. So we're going to mention it again next week, and we're going to provide some resources that you can either take in your hand or you can look on our website for them. But we're going to walk into Easter and spend some time thinking about the cross so that um, Easter, maybe this year, will impact you like never before. 
So I, I can't make any promises, but I, I think I can say with pretty good confidence, and maybe you've had this before, that when you take a season of your life and you just dedicate it to focusing on Christ, it changes you. And so that's what we want to invite you into, a time, a season to change and be focused on Christ. Okay, that was one big long announcement, okay? Welcome to Citizens Church. If you have not opened your Bible yet, please open it to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to look at this story. And it's an interesting story. It's got all kinds of things in it. A few years ago, I don't know if this was two or three years ago, I went with my daughter to the movie A Dog's Life. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. It's a movie for dog people, okay? I don't know if you're a dog person or not, but it's like the story of this dog that just like kind of like reincarnates over and over again and like impacts and touch people's lives. And in the movie theater, people were weeping, people were laughing, people were like gasping in joy. It was like, it was a dog fest, okay? So if you're like a dog person, this maybe is your text, right? This is maybe the one you need to go to because we're talking about like dogs, we're talking about demons, we're talking about spitting, we're sticking people's, your fingers in people's ears. There's all kinds of wild stuff in here. But when you get through all of that stuff, okay, when you kind of like read the text and go a little bit deeper, what you discover is that it's actually a text about searching, finding, and seeing Jesus. Okay, so that's basically what we want to do here together. We want to look at this passage, go through it bit by bit, and look at the message to those who are searching, the message to those who are finding, and the message to those who will see. And, and hopefully within this message, you will see and you will grasp a hold of where God maybe wants to speak to you this morning. And it begins with the first section here, which is to those who search. Look again at Mark 7, and we'll just quickly introduce ourselves to the kind of the two stories that are going to be happening here. So in verse 24, it says again here, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. We've heard this before, right? Multiple times, Jesus and the disciples trying to get away. They're looking for a break, actually. They're looking for a way to, to get away from the busyness of ministry and connect with God and at times spend hours in prayer or in separation from the ministry. And here they are again. They're looking for it. And verse 25 says, But immediately a, wom a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Go down to verse 31. 31 says, Then he entered from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Here we have, coming into Jesus' ministry path, these two stories. Lives that have been impacted in some pretty difficult circumstances. And they're searching for some sort of help. And we've talked about the story of C.S. Lewis before, but if you don't know anything about C.S. Lewis, he's a pretty well-known uh, Christian author, and he grew up in a Christian home, but really early on kind of rejected Christianity and 
He was probably a genius and even at a young age was kind of wrestling with what it meant to exist and be in this world. And as he was coming into uh, high school, university, was wrestling and trying to, to make sense of the world around him. And in Alistair McGrath's uh, book on his life, Alistair kind of takes all of Lewis's writings and tries to make sense of what Lewis was thinking and going through in different seasons of life. And at one point here, uh, McGrath in his book writes this, for Lewis, this is again Lewis trying to make sense and have a framework for understanding the world. For Lewis, medieval culture offered an imaginative vision of a unified cosmic and world order expressed in poems such as Dante's Divine Comedy. Okay, there you know he's an intellect, okay? If he's trying to make sense of the world and what he's using is Dante's poetry, that's probably not most of us in here. But Lewis is like somehow trying to search and grasp and make sense of the world around him. He was significantly impacted by World War I and all that was happening around him and the conflict in the world. And for him, the first thing he kind of grabbed onto, not successfully, but he kind of grabbed onto was poetry, medieval literature, somehow trying to make sense of it. Now most of us, depending how long you've lived, most of us have different times in our lives where we're also searching. We're trying to find some sort of framework to make sense of the world around us, either the things that are happening to us or the things that are happening around us. At times, We've talked about this before even. At times, it's even the good things in life, like the, the beauty of nature or something that is happening in your life that brings joy and is just wonderful. That also, you're kind of like disoriented in a moment like that, trying to make sense of how does this fit into the world. But most of the time, most of the time, it's moments of desperation and moments of difficulty that will actually drive us to think a little bit more and to search for some sort of footing to stand on. Mark Sayers, in his book, Reappearing Church, which was written the year before the pandemic, writes this, The secular life script in which humans attempt to live without having to confront the great questions of life creates insulation against faith. So basically saying, most people try to get through life not thinking about those things, and they kind of numb those questions they have with success, with all kinds of things, right? Mark goes on to write this, however, this insulation is not as secure as it may seem. And then he gives a bunch of examples, but one of the ones he gives is this, if we endured a global flu pandemic, like the one in the early part of the 20th century, the kind that kills, killed millions of people across the world, how we view and process our personal potentials and possibilities would be deeply shaken, and this is, we've actually been able to witness this. And we can even come, we're coming out of it now, and we can look back and say, okay, Mark, you were pretty right. It's the, the secular life script, but we've also known a ton of Christians whose life script has been, what they feel, blown apart. And their worlds are just like shaken and they're grasping for some sort of way, some sort of a framework, some sort of an understanding of the world to make sense of it. And Mark is saying here that that didn't exist maybe pre-pandemic was there, but it was like right under the surface, man. 
And it did not take a lot to kind of blow that to the side. Because we're searching, we're trying to find meaning in this world. Most of us want purpose. We want some sort of solution to the hardships in our lives. And we're looking, and sometimes we're easily satisfied, and then at other times, it's just laid bare like a wound. And so what does God actually say about this searching that goes on? What is actually happening? Okay, let's take a little sidestep here. There's a number of verses that actually talk about that. And one that maybe is the most clearest, the one that came to my mind, was in Romans 3, where Paul is building his case for the gospel. And then in chapters 1, 2, 3, he's talking about the, the sinfulness of man, kind of what Dustin talked about last week, how we're impure from the inside. And in this kind of summarizing statement, this section in chapter 3, In verse 11, he says this, No one understands and no one seeks God. Paul's saying, listen, when you're searching for something, when you're striving for solutions, you're not actually searching in a right way for God. You're grasping for something, but you're not naturally inclined towards something that is good, that is God who is good. But at the same time, throughout Scripture, we see glimpses of this kind of grasping, this kind of searching for God and for answers. In Psalm 27, it says this. Listen to these verses. Psalm 27, verse 7 says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, Seek my face. My heart says to you, Your face, Lord, do I seek. So David's saying, That's what I'm doing. I'm seeking your face. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you have been my help. Cast me not out. Not, not off, sorry. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. And then verse 10, he says, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. David's saying, God, I'm, I'm all in. I'm, I'm searching for you. I'm feeling like abandonment in the world around me, but I'm searching for you. And he comes to the conclusion, the summary at the end, that when that actually happens, God is going to take him in. God is going to bring him close. So we see that our hearts are not naturally inclined towards God, yet at the same time, God has built within us, and we have this longing to be drawn to him and to be connected to him. And there's this miracle that happens where the Holy Spirit actually uses things, uses circumstances, uses life, uses ultimately the Word of God, and there's a connection that is made. We are brought close to Him. And so what we see here in our text, and in this case, it's a a literal healing that the woman is desiring, and the man as well is brought by his friends or family for some sort of healing. And they come to Jesus in this searching moment. What were they looking for besides healing? We don't actually get a lot of understanding into what they were looking for. All they knew was, we're desperate. We need help. This guy sounds like a healer who is like legit. And so we're coming to Jesus here now. Alistair McGrath, back to the book on C.S. Lewis, concludes his kind of, concludes Lewis's journey here by writing this. Gradually, the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle began to fall into place. That's, that's Lewis's kind of making sense of what was happening in his mind. 
In Surprised by Joy, which is one of Lewis's books, Lewis sets out this series of moves which led him to faith in God using a chessboard analogy. Lewis portrays this not as moves which he made, but moves which were made against him. And the narrative of Surprised by Joy is not that of Lewis's discovery of God, but of God's patient approach to Lewis. So Lewis is like, after kind of thinking about what was going on in his life, after being drawn to some sort of framework through Dante's literature, finally came to discover what he was searching for was actually found in Christ and what was actually happening all along was God was kind of making the moves. God was actually putting things into place so that a clarity of understanding would come into Lewis's mind. So, where do you turn to when the script isn't working? What is it that you put your hope into when things aren't quite lining up? Listen, for some people, it's, you know, some sort of significant life event. Maybe they're waiting. They're like, okay, once I get married, then kind of everything's going to fall into place. You know, I'm just going to be happy, and then everything's going to be great. And then you get married, and you, you discover that, okay, there's actually a lot of problems with marriage. And so then you're like, okay, if we could just have kids. You know, once we just have some kids, then we're just going to be happy. Everything's going to, everything falls into place. Then you discover, okay, kids bring a whole whack load of problems, okay? And then it's not that. Then you're like, okay, maybe I'll pursue money. Or maybe I'll pursue some sort of career success. There's always something for when the script is not working. Some sort of searching that's actually searching in vain for some sort of solution. And what we see in the story, and maybe, maybe the, the great takeaway from these two examples is that where they turn to, whether they knew it or not, is they turn to Jesus. They turn to Jesus in a moment where Jesus is trying to be hidden, where Jesus is trying to get away from people, and yet they find him. They go towards him. Which takes us then to those who find him. Look again at chapter 7. In verse 26, and we'll just focus here on the woman's story. Verse 26, Mark kind of sets up the story here for us. It says, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So Mark makes it really plain. He puts it right into the story that this woman is a Gentile. She's not of Jewish descent. She is, you know, Syrian, kind of north, where modern-day Syria is, connected to kind of Greek Gentile culture. So she is like the woman that we talked about, if you remember in chapter 5, the woman who was, had the bleeding issue, who was unclean. That's the state that this woman is in towards Jesus. Jesus, a rabbi, a teacher, she's coming close to him, and yet she is an outsider, she is one who's not supposed to be there. She shouldn't be drawing close. She shouldn't be making herself, you know, close to Jesus so that she can somehow have uh, an experience with him or even get close to him. She's unclean. She's not supposed to be there. And Jesus responds to her 
by telling her the truth and using a word picture that is kind of confusing for us. In verse 27 he says, And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Okay, and it sounds like there that Jesus is, um, I mean, if nothing else, it sounds like he's kind of being mean or, or insulting to her. Right? He's, he's calling her a, a dog. But all he's doing is trying to um, give her a word picture of actually the truth of what he's doing. And throughout the Gospels, if you look at the Gospels, you see that Jesus and his ministry was primarily to the children of Israel. And in this case, he might even be specifically talking about um, the disciples who are there right around him. And so he, used this as, he uses this kind of word picture saying like, listen, if, if dinner is coming out, you don't give dinner straight away to the dogs, okay? Now, there's times in Scripture where the word dog is used in a really negative way. There's one Greek word that's kuon, which means dog, which is kind of like a, an immoral person or someone who is like an outcast. And that's not the word that Jesus actually uses. The word that Jesus uses is kunarion, which I'm sure all of you are up on your Greek, but I'm just going to tell you anyways, okay? What it really is, is a puppy or a house pet. Because in that time, most people didn't have pets, okay? Most of the dogs were just kind of out, walking in the streets, um, eating garbage, all that kind of stuff. But occasionally, families would actually have what was called a house pet. They would have a little puppy in the house. And so Jesus is saying, listen, my primary work is to go to the children of Israel. And so when you bring out dinner, you don't bring out dinner and put it to the puppy dogs, you give it to the kids first. And all Jesus is saying is the, the actual heart of God, which has always been to go to the nation of Israel first for a specific purpose so that the nation of Israel would be a light to the nations around them. And did you know that that is still our calling as a church? As a local church, God has still decided to use people like you and I who are growing in our faith to reach out to neighbors around us so that they would know Christ himself. Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 says this, do all things without grumbling and disputing. Good verse for all of us to memorize. Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent and children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I think some translations say even that you shine as stars in this world. Our calling as believers is actually to live in our neighborhoods, to work in our workplaces, and in those spaces to be lights that actually shine the truth of the gospel to the people around us. And not only to our neighbors here locally around us, but also God's heart is always for the whole world, a global view of the world. So we as God's people should have a growing passion for the lost, for the gospel, for the light and the message of Jesus Christ to go out throughout the world. And I don't know about you, but I often forget about 
the rest of the world and what God is actually doing in those places. I get like myopic and think about my only, you know, all my issues and the things around me, but God is actually building his church. And recently I got back in touch with one of the Christians who uh, we were involved with in the church planting that we did in Guinea. And this is wild. We've been like chatting back and forth now on WhatsApp. That's pretty wild. You can like text with someone who's on the complete other side of the world and hear how they're doing and just hear what God is doing even. And they were involved in some training there so to strengthen the local church. And it just reminded me that God is actually building his church on a global scale. It's going around the world. And that's always been his mission. And yet here he comes and he tells this to the woman. And what does she do? She persists. She keeps going. She keeps pressing into Jesus. Jesus is trying to rebuff her, saying, hey, my primary work is with the children of Israel. But she persists. In Matthew's account of the story, the disciples say, send her away for she's crying out after us. They're like, Jesus, please get rid of this lady. Like this is a little bit much here. She just keeps pressing in. She keeps going. Get rid of her. She's a Gentile. That's like plan B. We'll get to that someday. And so what does she say then to him? Look at verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So she says, okay, Jesus, I get it. I'm Gentile. I get it. I'm, I'm on the out. I'm not Jewish. But she said, even the dogs, she takes his analogy, and she says, even the dogs get like a little bit of the crumbs that fall or that the kids chuck down to the floor for the dogs, right? That happens too. She's like, I get it. But even us Gentiles get a piece of this. What is she doing here? Keller, since we quote him every week, says this. In Western cultures, we don't have anything like this kind of assertiveness. We only have assertion of our rights. We do not know how to contend unless we're standing up for our rights, standing on our dignity and our goodness and saying, this is what I'm owed. But this woman is not doing that at all. This is the rightless assertiveness Something that we know little about. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. And then, and I need it now. She's not saying, man, Jesus, I totally get your plan, but I'm pretty decent here still. And I'm, you know, I'm here for a good cause. It's for my daughter. Can't you just give me like a little bit of that? She actually says, I get it. I totally understand that you are here primarily for the nation of Israel. But she says, still won't you give me some? Still won't you come and heal my daughter? And do you see Jesus's, almost his amazement? He says, and in verse 29, and he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Jesus is like, whoa. There, there's like a depth of understanding here. There's a depth of, depth of finding help in Jesus that is amazing. And Matthew again puts it this way. He says that Jesus said to the woman, oh woman, great is your faith. 
So this is beyond just finding help in Jesus. This woman has somehow leaned into who Christ is, that he is more than just a healer. So what are your barriers? The woman was a Gentile. The woman was on on the outside. The woman was of a different culture. What is your barrier? I talk to a lot of people who maybe struggle with the the trustworthiness of the Word of God? Is this something that can be held onto? Is this true? Is this reality? Maybe people who have been hurt by the church or people who have been hurt by others. There's some sort of barrier that's hindering you and I from finding our fullness in Christ. And what we see here is this like full-on assertiveness of just pursuing Jesus. Just pushing through the barrier, saying, I don't know what I'm going to find, but I'm just, I'm going in and I'm looking to Jesus. Two things to remember, and, and one is this. These are just reminders that maybe you know these, but um, they're things that we need to hear over and over again. And the first is this, that God actually accepts knocking. God actually accepts this kind of assertive pursuit. Matthew 7 verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. So if you're wondering, you're like, I don't get Jesus. I don't get the church. You might not even like aspects of it. Keep going. Keep searching. Keep asking. Keep knocking on the door. Be assertive. But secondly, not only does God accept knocking and seeking, but God also embraces the humble. James chapter 1, and this is from the New Living Translation, says this, Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word of God as it is planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. Coming to God in humility. Knocking on the door, banging on the door, saying, Jesus, I've got answers. I'm wondering about this. I'm wondering about that. But God, I want to humbly come to you just like this woman did with this kind of humble assertiveness, and I want answers, God. And maybe you even say, just like the woman said, I want them now. I want them now. And you may get them, or you may not. But in the process, you keep pursuing. You keep going after Jesus. So there is a message to those who search, and there is a message to those who find. And then finally here in closing, there's a message to those who see. Let's look down now at verse 33, going back to the second story now of the man who's needing to be healed. Verse 33 says this, And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. Man, what is going on here? What is Jesus doing? This is some of those verses where you're just like, 
I'm not sure what's happening here. I don't think I'm going to repeat that practice, okay? I'm not going to do that to anybody else. But Jesus is actually, Jesus is actually coming to this man and showing him deep compassion. Jesus is coming close to this man and telling him in a way that he can actually experience and feel what he's going to do. There's different times where we see compassion to people who are hurting or maybe people who are on the out. I I included this picture of the Pope. It just happens to be random that we have kind of two Catholic references today, okay? We're not going down that road. Just bear with me. But here's a picture of the Pope who is embracing this man with all these tumors all over him. And it's one of those pictures that it, it captures the world's attention. It maybe even makes it onto the front page of the news or something. Or there's other times where it's something as simple as like a sports star or something, like a, a soccer player or a hockey player who comes and like signs the jersey of a child who is like struggling in some way or some sort of like um, difficulty and everybody just like gravitates to that. It becomes viral in a moment. Why is it? Because we long to see people show compassion to everybody. We even experience that when we're in moments of difficulty, when someone comes near to us. Maybe we're on a street and we're in like a, you know, a scary part of town or something. You're like holding someone's hand. Or maybe like an arm around a person in a mo- moment of difficulty. Or maybe you've been in a hospital before where a, like a really kind nurse or a doctor comes and is just like this comforting presence and they are near you in a moment of vulnerability and difficulty. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's coming close to this man. And you can see some of the, the details in the story where he, he takes this man to the side, is alone with him. He touches the man and connects with him on a physical level. He even sighs and is like feeling the emotion of what's happening right before him. He's connecting with this man. He's showing the compassion of a loving, godly father to someone who is on the out, to someone who is desperately in need. And ultimately, the man is healed. But beyond that, what Mark is trying to capture here in that story is not just this moment of compassion, which we need to see it because Jesus is the physical representation of God. Right? So if you wonder what God is like, when you read the Old Testament, you see all kinds of stories and you see everything that's going on. But then now you hear, see in the Gospels, Jesus before you. And you see him compassionate. You see him coming near to those who are on the outside. And you say, this is actually who God is. But more than that, Mark is trying to lay before us, and he's been doing this the whole book. He's trying to lay before us a a picture so that we can really understand who this Jesus is. And what we find is that The people here, when Jesus is healed, verse 37 says that they were astonished beyond measure because of all that Jesus did, because of the healing that Jesus did. That word there, astonished beyond measure, it's kind of all captured in this one Greek word, hyperpersosis, which is the astonishment at the miracle that is going on, so much so that people are deprived of their self-possession. Do you know what that means? 
It's like, remember that, I don't know, if you went to Sunday school, you remember that song, Jumping Up and Down? Jumping Up and Down? Jumping up and down, shout Hosanna. Yeah, you want to sing it now. It's going to be in your head for the rest of the day. That's basically what they were doing. They were, this word means they were jumping up and down. They were like amazed at what was happening before them. Maybe you've had this experience on Christmas morning or something where something, you got the gift you wanted and it was just so amazing. You're literally jumping up and down. That is what these guys are doing. They are experiencing the king before them and they can't contain themselves. And what Mark is doing is actually pulling from the Old Testament this imagery of what would, what would it look like when the king is actually present among you. And in Isaiah, Isaiah takes a lot of time to kind of prophetically say, this is what it's going to look like when the king comes. This is what it's going to look like when the Messiah is in your midst. And in Isaiah 35 verses 3 through 6, it says this, Strengthen the weak hands and find, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now listen to these verses. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for the waters break forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. Mark is saying to the audience that was there, to the original readers that he's writing to, and even to us today, that in this story, not only is there someone who's being healed, but what we're seeing before us is the Messiah laid bare. The king has come. And the things that happen when the king is present are happening. So in our searching and in our finding, are we truly seeing the Messiah, our king? I don't know if you guys have heard of Nabil Qureshi, who actually died in uh, 2017 uh, from cancer, but he's kind of wrote a famous book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And it's the story of Nabil going to university and trying to become a doctor and have, be successful in life. And he was kind of searching for that and was totally on the trajectory of being a successful doctor in life. And he came into his roommate who was a Christian. And slowly over years, literally years, and over maybe hundreds of conversations, he slowly began to crawl, in a sense, towards an understanding of who Jesus was. In his mind, he was a Muslim and he was dedicated to Islam. And yet over time, over conversations, he slowly began to see the reality of who Jesus was. And in his book, he writes this prayer. And this is before he was a Christian. But it was in that moment of searching and in that moment of trying to figure out what was happening, he wrote this, Please, God Almighty, tell me who you are. I beseech you and only you. Only you can rescue me. At your feet I lay down everything I have learned. And I give my life entirely to you. Take away what you will. Be it my joy, my friends, my family, or even my life. But let me have you, O oh God. 
Light the path that I must walk. I don't care how many hurdles are in the way, how many pits I must jump over or climb out of, or how many thorns I must step through. Guide me on the right path. If it is Islam, show me how it is true. If it is Christianity, give me eyes to see just who, just who, which the path is yours. That's a little confusing there. But dear God, so that I can walk it. You see Nabil's searching, his longing, his not even being able to put his finger on what it is that he's searching and longing for, but committed to searching and looking for Christ. I hope today that this text, if nothing else, has just highlighted for you that each of you was made to be in relationship with God. And each of us, for various reasons, have barriers. Why we find that so difficult to get to him. But today he's reminding each one of us to pursue him. To go after him. To bang on the door. To look for him. And if you can't do that on your own, you have friends here. You have people here who will take you on that journey to find your fullest fulfillment in Christ. And ultimately, Nabil Qureshi, we know his testimony, you can read it in his book, found his fullest and truest hope and joy in Christ. And he's in the presence of Christ today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this amazing account. Thank you for how the Gospel of Mark even puts it together. And Lord, I pray for each of us this morning that are at different points in our walk with you and are at different places in our search of truth. And Lord, we've all grasped and longed for other things. And I pray that we would find our ultimate and true hope in our Messiah and our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.